You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everybody that has recently signed up to become a patron, as well as our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Bull, Rumgut, Matthew, Lopez, Ward, Paul, Vertigon, Yeltik, Contefalliende, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. At the very least, there are dozens of works written about the life of Admiral Sir Henry Morgan. Everything from hard, factual academic history to wildly inaccurate romance novels. He's been an influence on pop culture characters like Captain Blood and become the face of many... Caribbean resorts and attractions, and even become the mascot for a brand of rum familiar to college students the world over. He's probably, or at least his name, is probably the second most well-known real-world pirate after Blackbeard. All of this because of a surgeon, who was able to read and wrote what happened on two of his voyages, and a man who held a grudge against his old boss— But Alexander Exquimelin, as biased and inaccurate as he was, wrote a compelling narrative about the Admiral, and it sold. It sold well. You see, every other Admiral in the Jamaica station, even those who successfully raided up and down the Spanish Main, aren't really remembered. The governors of Jamaica, whose correspondence and records about whom we still have in many cases, still really aren't that well known. Now, Morgan was more successful than any of those others. He sailed farther, he commanded a larger fleet, he raided bigger cities, but more than anything, I think, we remember him because we love a good story. And the story of Captain Morgan delivers, but really, we only know it because of a Dutch ship's surgeon. Now, there are dozens, even hundreds, of fascinating tales of Caribbean piracy out there, maybe even more than that, which we we'll never get to know. See, we won't know them because there was no one there to write them down. What got me thinking about this topic was the captain named Francis Witherborn. In nearly every biography written about Henry Morgan, Witherborn is mentioned. His name is in dozens of books at the least, but it's only in there as a footnote, as a brief aside. He was Morgan's shipmate on the voyage to London. That's about it. Last time, I talked about the conversations that they must have had, which we'll never get to know about. I'd still love to hear them, as it happens, but upon reaching England, Witherborn's story just fades away. Morgan, who was a landowner and a pillar of the community, was given a mattress in a wealthy manner. Witherborn, well, we don't know. Not exactly, anyway. See, he was just a nobody. He was just... A scoundrel from far away with no family and no friends, and he didn't have anyone out there writing books about him. You know that old saying, history is written by the victors? This is episode 34, By the Vanquished. 
So today, I'd like to talk about the real people that fought at Panama. I'd love to tell the stories of the men on the ground, the men that were marching and fighting and dying. I'd love to tell tales from the women and children trapped inside the walls of Panama or, or else on the run outside the walls. I'd love to tell the tales of the Amerindian guerrillas and their ambushes against the buccaneer army. But unfortunately, those tales are difficult to come by, really sort of impossible. They were all, at the time, quite a bit busy. Nobody had time while they were fighting or running to jot down exactly how they were feeling. Now, thankfully, Exwomelon wrote his account, or we'd know far less about the raid on Panama than we actually do today. But what I wouldn't give to have just one journal from a man that was actually on the voyage. We'll never even know the names of most of those that sailed with Morgan. You see, a few years after Panama, when the dust had finally settled, a new crop of pirates will emerge from those ashes. We'll know their commanders' names, their captains, and even a fair bit about some of them, but what we don't know is what they were up to before their names became infamous. They didn't just pop up one day on the docks at Tortuga all, Hello, I'm a poor lad from Bristol, here to seek my fortune. Mind if I take command of your ship? No, they were working their way up through the ranks of the Brethren of the Coast for years, sailing and fighting and navigating. Some of them were smart enough to steer clear of Morgan and his crazy schemes, but at least 2,000 men were there marching on Panama, and that's the majority of the buccaneers in the Caribbean at the time. But what we actually know about most of the men in that march is, well, nothing. Not their names or their nationalities, not where they were born or how they died. For the few that we actually do know something about, well, unless they're Admiral Morgan, there isn't much. For example, that uh, that man, Captain Francis Witherborn, he was probably at Panama, but we can't be certain. He wasn't mentioned by Exquimelin, nor was he listed as a captain on the list of ships and captains in the official English report about Panama, but still, he was probably there. However, despite being mentioned in all those books about Captain Morgan, all that's said of him in any actual official record goes as follows. This is from the Calendar of State Papers, Colonial, America and the West Indies, Volume 7. Quote, March 20th, Jamaica. Minutes of a council of war held aboard HMS Assistance for the trial of Captain Francis Witherborn for piracy. That, having notice of the peace, he took command of the bark Charity to continue privateering, that he consorted with Yalas and fled when chased by the Assistance. That he took a Spanish canoa, and his mate, Thomas Wright, took another canoa, which is still out privateering. That there were articles of consortship between Witherborn and one Captain de Mangle, a Frenchman, obliging each other to continue privateering. And that he would not have surrendered if not forced. To which Witherborn only made this defense, that his men governed him, that his mate Wright had greater influence over them than he had, and that the articles were only to blind the Frenchmen. Upon consideration of the whole matter, we were of the opinion that having committed piracy and broken the Articles of Peace, Captain Witherborn ought to suffer death according to the law. 4th of April, 1672, Jamaica. Orders and instructions from Sir Thomas Lynch to Captain John Keane of HMS Welcome to receive on board Colonel Henry Morgan as His Majesty's prisoner, to receive from the Captain of the Assistance, Captain Francis Witherborn, and to keep him prisoner until he receive His Majesty's orders. 
20th August, 1672, Whitehall, in response to the taking of a Spanish ship. His Majesty has great reason to believe that this violence has not been done by any of his subjects of Jamaica, but by some of those privateers who have refused to submit themselves, and take not only Spanish vessels, but English also, and that Her Catholic Majesty may be assured of the King's resolution to cause the peace to be observed with all strictness in America. And in pursuance of His Majesty's commands, the Governor of Jamaica has taken one Captain Witherborne, condemned him as a pirate, and sent him here, where he he remains a close prisoner. End quote. And that's it. He was tried, condemned as a pirate, transferred to the assistants alongside Sir Henry, and kept as a prisoner. That's the entirety of the history of this man. That's all we can know about him. But can you imagine what his life must have been like? Can you imagine what a book or a movie based on him would be like? I mean, imagine it. Imagine that... He was born a, a poor child. Maybe he was an orphan, or, or no, maybe he was, maybe he was born to a, a violent, drunken father. Of course, his mother was kind and loving, but she died when he was very young. So, to escape his father's drunken rages, he ran away from home at ten. He made his way to the docks, where he begged for food and stole what he needed. He lived that way for years, sleeping rough and eating what he could scrounge, until. When he'd grown big for his age, a captain noticed him on the docks and made him the ship's boy on his vessel. Now the ship would have been a merchantman, probably a slaver, bound for the Americas, which, of course, young Francis had always dreamed of seeing. But the journey across the Atlantic was a nightmare. He'd never seen slavery up close, and he felt bad for them, and beyond that, the ship's captain was a cruel master who beat him frequently. Now, when they finally reached Barbados, Francis decided to jump ship and run for town, and there he went back to his old ways, stealing and scraping. But before long, he fell in with the rough crowd there in town. They drank at the local taverns, and they would rob men that were sleeping off their own drink, until, one night, a group of hard-looking men came in with swords and muskets and ordered a round of drinks. They drank, and they laughed, and they sang, and they fondled the barmaids, but no one dared say a word to them. They stepped wary around these men. One man in the group, who was drinking and carousing just a shade less than the others, approached Francis and his mates. He brought them a round of drinks, and he sat down to chat with them. He told them that he was the quartermaster of a ship in the harbor, and that he was looking for men. He said that they were a privateer vessel, and that, though it was hard work, it paid better than working on a merchant vessel or scrounging for what you could on the docks. So Francis found himself on board their ship, scrubbing the decks and training under a gunner. He was, after all, a big lad. When they finally made their way to Tortuga, it became clear that they weren't really privateers at all, just, just a buccaneer crew with a French commission. Of course, Francis didn't mind that. He earned good pay, and he even had a say in his fate on board the vessel. So Francis roved. For years he sailed, and he attacked ships and raided villages, even once venturing into the Gulf of Mexico to attack Campeche alongside the famous Captains Diego and the Brazilian. When his pockets were full, he'd spend them on drink and women, and when they emptied, he'd go out again. Then, when he was in port, at Tortuga, word came of a raid, but not just any raid. This was to be the biggest raid the West Indies had ever seen. Captain Morgan himself had called the ships in, and word was they were going to take Havana, or maybe even Cartagena. 
Francis was by this time a quartermaster with two dozen men under him. He'd fought across the Spanish main and seen both hard times and fortunes. But Morgan? That man was a legend. His raids were the biggest and the richest in the world, even bigger than the old French captain Lolonais. So his ship sailed with Morgan to attack Panama. In the end, though, it wasn't exactly glorious. It was hard marching and hungry work. Men were getting sick and starving even before they attacked. They did take the city, though, and expected to become rich and retire, but in the end, they received a mere ten pounds silver. It was, well, it was insulting. Then Morgan and his cronies sailed back to Port Royal ahead of an angry mob of buccaneers. So his ship held an election there at San Lorenzo Castle, and they decided to make him Francis captain. He'd always done well by them, they said, even when their captain and Morgan had led them to disaster. But his boys, the men on his vessel, they were greedy. They felt robbed by Morgan, and they wanted to take every ship they encountered without returning to Tortuga for a commission. It was a dangerous and foolhardy move, but everyone had a vote, and the men refused to return home empty-handed. Mostly, it went well, at least at first. They took canoes and two barks. They took logwood and dye and silver. But then, one day, sails. They were large sails, and they looked to be English. Francis warned his men of danger. He didn't think it was a good idea to attack, but his quartermaster overruled him. All of the men on board only saw gold. It was a frigate out of Port Royal, as it turned out, and carrying soldiers and navy men. So Francis and everybody else on board was captured. They were put in chains, and they were tried in the harbor there at Port Royal. Then, being held prisoner in the hold of the ship that was going to take him back to England to face his fate, well, in walked Admiral Henry Morgan. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Of course, none of that actually happened. I just made all that up. Or then again, maybe it did happen. We don't know. And we can't know at all conclusively. But the aftermath of Panama saw hundreds and hundreds of men with stories that sounded something like that. I can't tell those stories, though. The only stories I can tell belong to the few who we do know about. For example, do you remember ages ago when we talked about Diego the Mulatto, also called Diego Lucifer? He was the young man that sailed the Bay of Campeche seeking revenge for his ill-treatment at the hands of the Spanish. 
Well, if not, he was a young man that sailed the Bay of Campeche seeking revenge for his ill treatment at the hands of the Spanish. Now, all that happened back in 1633, but it's very possible that he actually was at Panama and sailed under Captain Morgan. Now, that would be 1671, which would be 38 years after he originally went on the account. If we say generously that Diego was 15 years old when he ran away from home to go buccaneering, well, that would have been back in 1630. And that gives him three years to get a ship and a crew together and then attack Campeche. If that's the case, if he were 15 when he started, he would have been at least 56 years old when Morgan attacked Panama, and almost certainly actually a few years older than that. But there was a Captain Diego with Morgan on his voyage to Portobello that also captained a ship called the San Juan at Panama. Now, Exquamelon called him the Pirate of Campeche, which was our Diego, Diego Lucifer's hunting ground, and well, he was referred to only by his first name. You see, this isn't typical even of pirate captains, but it's the norm for bastards who were born to a slave that had no last name. You see, it's that last name problem that confuses the issue here. There was our Diego el Mulato, active in the 1630s, and then there was another one, active in the 1640s, who some think may have been the same Diego the Mulato, but finally, there was that Diego that sailed with Lolone and with Morgan. Now, they could have been three separate men, but I choose to believe that they were all one very talented, very lucky, and long-lived pirate. And some historians agree with me, or at least they accept the possibility that it's true. It's either were there three Diego the Mulattoes that were pirate captains within a 40-year period, or was there one who had a very long career. Regardless, though, we do know the fate of the Captain Diego who sailed on Panama with Captain Morgan. Probably. Now, he called himself Diego Grillo, and by then he wasn't sailing from Campeche, but out of Tortuga. I'll quote a man named Bennerson Little, who was a U.S. Navy SEAL, who writes about the military tactics that pirates used. Quote, In June 1673, he captured a Spanish merchant ship sailing from Havana to Campeche. Three Spanish ships, crewed with 150 men, sailed from Havana in pursuit and soon found Diego. The old pirate engaged them with his 15-gun frigate. The details of the fight are lacking, but almost certainly Diego attacked at close range, 100 yards or less, using his great guns to shatter timbers, shred rigging, and slaughter men. While his musketeers blazed away, forcing Spanish gunners and arcabuceros to keep their heads down, Diego captured at least one of the vessels, and some say all three, and hanged the twenty Spaniards aboard who were born in Spain. The rest he set free. End quote. See that last bit there about killing only the Spaniards aboard? Well, that's what most strongly suggests to me that that's the very same man that sacked Campeche in a quest for vengeance against Spain exactly 40 years earlier. But that was the last of Diego's exploits. Now, there aren't any verifiable accounts, as with most of Diego's life, but two months after taking that last Spanish prize, he was captured and he ended his life at the end of a Spanish gibbet. Now, Diego was actually captured alongside another buccaneer, one that I've actually never mentioned, despite his being neck deep in many of the raids we've talked about over the last few months. His name was Jan Lukash, and his story, well, honestly, it's better than the story I made up earlier. 
He was born in Amsterdam in 1644, and as a teenager he took a job on a Zeeland flute headed for St. Kitts. When he arrived, he took work on different merchantmen that were crisscrossing the Leeward Islands for years. In 1666, he was at Barbados with a convoy. The convoy was fairly large, and it was actually bound for St. Kitts. It had a bunch of relief supplies. They were in the middle of a war between England and France at the time. But before they were able to leave, the fleet was struck by a hurricane. Now, his flute was one of only two ships that survived that storm and managed to limp her way to Montserrat. In October of that same year, he joined another convoy, this time a little bit more successful, that was carrying women and children and slaves away from the war to Jamaica, where it was still peaceful. In Jamaica, he stayed for a time, and then he joined a logwood cutting expedition, which was one of Port Royal's more profitable ventures. Now, he went to the Spanish main, cut his logwood, and then, on his journey back, he was actually waylaid by none other than the infamous pirate Francois Lolonet. Now, of course, Lolone took the logwood for himself, but Jan and his companions had nothing to worry about except for, you know, losing out on all the wood they had just cut. They were, after all, logwood cutters from Port Royal. They were in the same sort of lifestyle as Francois Lolone. They would have heard of him and probably respected him. So, many of the men actually joined up with the fleet. And for nine months, Lan Yukash sailed with his crew under Lolone. Now, Jan himself might not have had much experience buccaneering, but he was an accomplished sailor, and as a buccaneer, he made a name for himself. His crew took Spanish vessels all over the Caribbean, and he saw Lolone commit some pretty unspeakable atrocities, which was how Lolone does, but they made themselves quite a bit of money. Unfortunately, they wouldn't get the chance to keep it. This was the fateful voyage on which Lolone ran afoul of a storm and wrecked at Cabo Gracia Adios. Here, he and Jan Lukash parted ways. Lolone went to be eaten by a bunch of Indians, and Jan, along with some other men, built a craft and hugged the Mosquito Coast until they came upon some logwood cutters that gave them a lift back to Jamaica. So he arrived home to Port Royal in 1669. Shortly after arriving, almost on the heels of it, the Spanish attacked Jamaica, and Governor Modiford gave Morgan the right to issue letters of mark. Now one of these actually went to Jan Lucas, who was known by this point as a brave and reliable captain. He was given a brigantine that sailed in the shadow of Morgan's own flagship, the Satisfaction, as an auxiliary vessel. After Panama, as everyone was, he was fairly disappointed, and with his pockets and the pockets of his crew feeling a bit empty, they put back out to sea with Captain Diego, who they had met at Panama. They set sail for the Gulf, which was an old haunt for a lot of the buccaneers, and they raided the Yucatan coast there. About a month before Diego was captured, Jan Lukash was taken by the Spanish and hung on that same gibbet to await his friend. Now, these three men were far from the only buccaneers to end their days at the end of a rope. Their stories really aren't even all that extraordinary. They're almost typical, really. Buccaneers raid, make a little money, go to Panama, captured by the Spanish, and die. You see, England and Spain were both doing all they could to combat piracy in the days following Panama, and both of them became exceedingly good at it. But some men just couldn't go back to a life of legitimate labor. They couldn't go cut log wood or 
go plant crops or work on a merchant vessel. That wasn't in the cards for them. They didn't know any life other than buccaneering. And so they kept at it. And for most of them, it killed them. But there were other types of stories out there. Stories that began at Panama and continued on that didn't end swinging at the end of a hangman's noose. And yet, in their own way, some of these stories had nearly as tragic an end. Next time we're going to continue our look at the aftermath of Panama through the eyes of some of these lesser-known pirate captains, men like John Bennett, Jan Erasmus Reining, and Gels Lacaw. See, there are a fair number of these stories, and I'd like to tell as many of them as possible, partly because the aftermath of Panama was really the end of the age of Captain Morgan, and the beginning of something new. The 1670s were a difficult time for the buccaneers, but by 1680, things had changed, and they were able to begin anew. But before we can get to that, I'd like to finish the stories of many of these pirates who ended their days in the wake of the attack on Panama, and introduce us to a number of the characters that are going to be central to our story moving forward. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of those of you who have left a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, that really helps out. Everybody who has been kind enough to leave us a donation or sign up for our Patreon, we really couldn't do the show without you, and my heartfelt thanks go out to all of you. I know today's episode was a little bit shorter than usual. However, I know that many of you would like episodes with a fair bit more regularity. Unfortunately, the research burden is still there, so if I'm going to try to get episodes out every week, they're going to be a shade shorter, but you can begin to look forward to new episodes of the podcast every week. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, go on over and do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Most importantly, and as always, thank you for listening. Tonight